Hello and welcome. I'm Jake Thorne, and this is the American Sheep Industry Association's Research Update. Our podcast typically focuses on new ideas and innovative techniques that are the result of the scientific process, but at its very core, we are really trying above all else to help the American sheep producer be successful. And to accomplish that, sometimes we may need to set aside our discussions on research for a topic that is timely, such as the case today. Much of the U.S. right now is gripped by drought, and sheep producers are scrambling to make a plan to deal with the lack of quality grasses and feed. And as if stress over animal health and well-being isn't enough, drought can be a financial burden that can suffocate an agricultural business to a point that it may never recover. To update us on ways that we can find some financial relief for instances of drought, we've asked extension specialist and agriculture taxation expert J.C. Hobbs from Oklahoma State University to join us and provide some insight on preparing and dealing with the worst that Mother Nature can throw at us. Thanks for being here today, J.C. Thanks for inviting me. I greatly look forward to this. Sure. Now, my introduction of you was too brief, uh, so can you please provide us with a little more information about your current role as an extension specialist and how you came to be in that position? Uh, my current role, I am the associate extension specialist in uh, areas of farm taxation as well as farm and business uh, management. I just kind of, I used to be an area farm management specialist in Oklahoma and I used to work in various parts of the state. Um, our tax specialist retired, and I moved into that role. Perfect. Now, our listeners are from a, a variety of regions across the U.S. with vastly different climates and associated production schemes. When we hear the term drought, that may not mean the same thing to everybody. So what is your definition of drought for a livestock producer, regardless of where they're at? Really, we're looking at the uh, weather conditions that's causing either one of two things, typically, sometimes both, shortage of pasture due to dry conditions or shortage of water. And when you say define it, what we typically look at is information provided to us from the drought, uh, National Drought Mitigation Center that uh, updates on a weekly basis drought conditions across the United States. So it gives us uh, levels of drought for a particular region, typically reported as abnormally dry, uh, moderate, severe, extreme, or exceptional drought conditions. Um, then that information basically is used by the Secretary of Ag or the U.S. Drought Monitor when they distribute information. And that comes out by state and by county and also looks at then adjoining counties to the drought areas. So it's a very widespread, detailed information source. It gives us a lot of good ideas of what's going on from one state to the next or one county to the next. Sure, and that's best access online? Correct, yes. That information, you can Google it, and the drought monitor pops up, the drought mitigation center, even the Secretary of Ag uh, disaster declarations can be found by Google. Okay, perfect. Now, we will get into the finite details further in a second, but in general, what are the different ways that drought can impact a, a livestock operation financially? Well, it can be short run and long run. So uh, let's talk about the short run first. What we see happening are increased operating costs, 
because we're purchasing feed, we're hauling water, uh, renting additional pasture, and those things kind of mitigate some of the problem up front, but it has an impact in the long-term profitability when that happens. Also, we end up with decreased revenue, lower weight gains. Uh, if we have more breeding animals, reduced conception. Um, also, production, wool production. We also notice in, in uh, milk production in the dairy industry. So, you know, the nutritional impact of the uh, shorter quality, less quality grasses due to the drought have an impact there, as well as what happens, we start selling animals before the really optimum weight. So our market animals, in order to save pasture, sometimes we'll move them out early. By doing so, they're at a less than optimum weight, less than or possibly less than optimum price because usually a drought area is widespread. So basically, you're looking at reduced income for the overall operation. And then the long-term issues. Well, when we get into the point where it's getting drastic enough that we have to potentially sell breeding animals in order to save pasture, what happens? The issue basically boils down to we have less production. We have the issue of, well, less production, less income. Yeah. Then when it comes back to as the gra uh, grasses come back, improvements were made, then we got to buy those animals back to order to get back up to optimal production. So you have a lag time there where we don't have as quite as much revenue coming in, and it's over a longer period of time than just a one-year market cycle. So, Yeah, and so I, I asked that uh, within the context of, you know, all agriculture operations, but I, I want to break that down just a little bit more. And I'm going to ask this well, using a, a cattle example because of your background with the beef industry. How does drought impact a, a cow-calf operation that has a, a permanent breeding herd? And, and how may that be different from an operation that's more fluid with their capital, such as somebody that runs stalkers and can liquidate those animals much quicker? Uh, how, how does, how, what are the differences there and, and how does that translate to the sheep industry? Well, what I see from the sheep point of view, we don't have the stalker side. So you don't have that, as you recall, or, or referred to as a fluid situation. And when you look at, at the breeding side, it doesn't seem to matter whether it's beef cattle, dairy animals, or sheep, anything that's grazing pastures. The breeding animal side of the point, uh, coin is exactly the same. So when we're dealing with the sheep industry, since we really don't have a uh, once the lamb is produced, we get ready to weaning and he goes off the farm. Um, it's a whole lot different than what we have with the stalker industry. When we see the drought coming on, we don't have the pasture, we don't buy the animals. Right. So the breeding side of it is you don't have as many opportunities for adjustments that you do if it was uh, on the beef side where you're dealing with uh, stalkers, where you could make the decision, I don't need as many this year, or if I've got lush pastures, I buy more. Right. You don't have that room for error right. anytime with breeding animals, and no matter what industry we're in, we're in uh, involved in. Sure. Okay, so the balancing act that sheep producers are trying to perform is that perfect stocking rate where profits are maximized, but the grazing pressure isn't detrimental to the pasture or range conditions long term. Now, when it's dry, there's always this sense of 
Should I hold on to my animals longer and see if it rains? Or should I play it safe and, and sell off my stock now? In your experience, which type of mindset usually works out better? Typically, we look at the playing it safe side because we don't know when it's going to rain. Now, when you're talking about playing it safe, it also requires some thought. In other words, what you want to look at are your less productive animals, your older animals, things like that. So if we're dealing with the sheep side of this, we've got some ewes that are a little older, maybe a little less productive, uh, maybe few, throw a few fewer twins, etc. Maybe those are the ones we look at first. And we start culling into the herd little by little. Mm -hmm. And also there's a situation where if we've got lambs that are ready to go, and let's get them off the off the pastures and give it some relief as well. So uh, when I say playing it safe, you're looking at ways of making sure that we don't overgraze the pasture so that it's there when we want to keep the or want our breeding animals to come back into uh, cycle, continue to produce, etc. So like I said, if you're looking at it, older animals, offspring that are older uh, are ewes and rams that are a little less sound breeding wise those types of things so that we can then uh, give us some relief but we're not really dipping too hard into our uh, sales income from production from a profit point of view over the long term right exactly okay now let's say somebody doesn't play it safe and they gamble on that decision and it doesn't really work out it drought persists pastures are dry overgrazing occurs and so how can that situation affect an operation you know financially or, or however for years into the future uh this often occurs because we always want to take the gamble that it's going to rain yeah so you end up grazing a little harder and what happens with well, the invasive species start popping up uh, a little less desirable plants etc Sometimes those can have a long-term impact and usually do have a long-term impact because they compete for water just like the desirable plants. So if we can avoid that scenario, we're better off. But it's not always completely avoidable. Uh, so whenever you come into that scenario, you're looking at your forage management, your grazing management. Hopefully we talk to people like yourself when we begin this process and Let's evaluate the farm and are we really hurting our grasses? If we are, let's make some changes. Yeah, absolutely. Now, selling off animals when it appears to be dry or, or droughty will mean a couple of things. First of which is you might have increased income now, which you traditionally would not have later on, uh, whenever that, whenever later would be. Now, what are some considerations from tax purposes and what options do we have? We have a couple of options. The Internal Revenue Service, the Internal Revenue Code, has a couple provisions in there, and it talks about weather-related sales of livestock. This is in the, this is in the area of the casualty loss information of, of the tax code, and the two provisions basically applies to sales in excess of normal, so excess animals sold above and beyond normal. Um, the first of those provisions deals with draft, dairy, breeding, and sport animals. No poultry, uh, no market animals. So we're looking at draft, dairy, breeding, and sport. 
what you're doing there, again, like I said, you're looking at those sales in a year when they're in excess of normal. So that's that drought condition, flood condition, or any other weather condition. The farmer, when he makes that decision to sell those, at the end of the tax year, he has the ability to elect to, one, postpone recognizing the gain on the tax return by making an election that he's going to rebuy or repurchase those animals at a later date. Now, if we haven't, uh, don't have an extreme drought scenario, we're just dry, we have two years from the end of that drought to buy those animals back. So what you're doing is you're kicking the can down the road. So instead of paying the tax the year of sale, we end up paying the tax on those animals when they are sold. So we may be looking at five, six, seven years down the road before we have a tax tax situation that arises. Okay. So in that scenario, you're postponing until the new animals or replacement animals are uh, liquidated. The second provision, it applies to all animals against a sold in excess of normal. So it's the stalkers, it's the lambs, it's et cetera, usually not lambs in the scenario. But again, it also applies to uh, breeding animals. Again, drought, flood, other weather condition causes a sale. But in order for this provision to be allowed, we have to have a federally declared disaster area or secretary of ag de declared disaster. What that means is we've got severe, exceptional, or extreme drought conditions. In, those, in that scenario, we are not going to buy the animals back, but we are going to, any animal that's sold in excess of normal due to the drought this year, we would normally have reported those as a sale in the following year. We're allowed to push that income to the next year. So basically it allows us then to avoid bunching of income. So the animals that would have been sold, if the drought not occurred, well, they would have been sold or reported as normal. And what you end up doing by doing this is you're leveling the income or avoiding the tax bracket creep by having a lot of income in one year. So it's all, all bunched in one year. So when you're looking at it from the tax point of view, what you're trying to do is level your taxable income. You're trying to make sure that we don't jump between brackets from like the 10 to 12% or the 22%, et cetera, or, or uh, take advantage of maybe even capital gains rates, which are more preferable than ordinary income rates. If we're selling breeding animals, we don't want to buy them back, but we want to report it as capital gain income. Um, so there's, there's the pieces of that puzzle that make it work. And there's the two provisions that the tax code has built in. Okay. Now you said it in that answer, but I'm going to ask you again, who makes the determination that a particular area is in drought? And what is the benchmark for that uh, standard? You're going back to that uh, the National Drought Mitigation Center. They collect inf information on rainfall, levels of rainfall amounts, et cetera. They're the ones that really look at what the conditions are on a county-by-county county basis. And then I don't know who all the contacts are. I've heard USDA offices in those counties, uh, even extension offices report rainfall in, in various states. So that's where they're getting their information. And that is reported, again, like I said, on a nationwide wide level. They report it to the drought monitor. They report it to the Secretary of Ag, who then makes the declarations. Okay. 
Now, in, in my opinion, I guess these deferrals and, and provisions, they fit nicely within the production calendar of, of cattle, where you're going to have a seven or eight month window between birth and, and weaning and selling of that, that offspring. But with sheep, that shorter gestation and, and period from birth to sale, now how does that translate with these, with these deferrals that you mentioned when the production calendar is so much shorter? Well, really, you don't have much when, in terms of your market animals. Uh, that's very short period. You're probably not selling some of those animals in one year and then selling part of them in the next. You're probably all of them in one year. So it really has no impact on them. So your market animals, from a sheep point of view, is no different. Where you get into your issue or, or the benefit is in your breeding livestock. Okay. And like I said, if you're looking at it from selling off ewes, if you're going to buy them back, again, you report that income and at a much later date when you actually sell those ewes that you repurchased. Or if you're going to keep your own ewes and, and replace them, you may be wanting to use the capital gains rules, pay a little lower capital gains rate, and uh, then rebuild them from within the herd. So you're, you're kind of playing the, the uh, tax game, and you re re change high income tax brackets to capital gains rates of low end, if everything works great, 0% capital gain tax, up to a maximum of about 20. For the majority of our sheep producers, or farm producers actually, we uh, max out at about 15%. Well, if you look at the number of tax brackets below 15%, that's only two from ordinary, you've got five above that. So that's why I say you've got capital gains rates much more of a preferential rate, and that's where you want to move them to. Okay. Now, how about the value of wool? Uh, is that considered at all in in the sale of these animals in these tax deferrals? No, wool is the same thing as milk. Sorry about that. No, yeah, it, it doesn't work. They're looking at the animal itself, so uh, the breeding animals, etc. But so, so no, there's no benefit there. It would have been kind of nice if it would be. So again, you could kind of mitigate some of that problem as well. But now there's there's none. Sure. Now, how about how might the ebbs and flows of, of the livestock market change your decision to take advantage of one of these uh, deferrals or not? <laughs> Good question. Normally, when you get into the markets and we start seeing drought, the drought uh, issue drives the market down. Everybody's needing to sell right. animals. Yeah. It's really not market conditions that dictate what we're doing or what how we what we elect to do in terms of either postponing for a year or whether we elect to buy them back over a period of time. That's usually a tax management decision from one point of view and from a much more important role is what is your business goals and what is your herd? If you've got good genetics and by selling those off and electing to uh, defer that over and buy animals back, can we repurchase animals of the high quality? If we can't, we might want to go ahead and use the one-year deferral, realizing that we're going to have to put, bring those animals in from the herd so that we can maintain our genetics. So it, it's both a tax point of view, but really want to look at what is the goal for the herd, what is our farm goals, and what kind of genetics are we trying to deal with? Because a lot of times, if we've got good genetics, our animals are worth a lot more than if we're just running the mill. So. Right. Yeah, you'd have to do a little self-evaluation there. Exactly. Decision. Yeah. 
Now, for tax purposes, are all weather-related events, and we're just talking, so far we've just discussed drought, but are all weather-related events, flooding or wind damage or, or whatever, are they treated the same? If you've got, when you say wind damage, it's usually uh, drought or flood that gets most of it. Flood. Okay. Um, there have been times when extreme cold weather has yep. triggered this, but you're talking uh, that that's rarity, but it has happened. Uh, but we're typically looking at drought or flood where we have shortage of water, shortage of pasture. So, like I said, we have seen conditions where we've had enough of a hard winter that we've kind of knocked back or have less forage being produced at, at early on, which has ha had some impacts. But the majority of the time, it's drought and floods. All right. Okay. Well, now I want to shift gears just a little bit. Now, confinement feeding uh, is another alternative that is commonly done by sheep producers in certain regions of the U.S. and by certain breeders that are marketing high-value livestock. Yet, uh, this requires purchased feed, substantial facilities, and, and obviously experienced managerial know-how. Now, how would you suggest a commercial range sheep producer economically assess whether shifting to confinement production should be taken seriously? When you're defining commercial, are we talking more of uh, just a standard grower? Or are we talking somebody that's selling, uh, also selling some um, breeding stock that's... I would say, let's talk about it within the context of the standard grower. Okay. Market lambs is primary, uh, the primary uh, thing that's being sold. Really, when you get into that, my personal or way I look at this is, if you can rent the additional pasture, you can buy feed cheap enough. To keep them on board, it's wise. Again, you don't sacrifice production in the long term, but you're going to have to weigh out how much can we afford to buy, pay for feed, how much is that going to impact our income and expense items for the year, and the other side of it is do we have the ability to acquire extra pasture or a dry lot scenario? That, to me, that's sometimes uh, uh, the, the key ingredient. When you, if you can't find somebody to take your animals and put them into another pasture location in another state, for example, yeah. or if you can, can somebody else handle them and, and do they have the expertise to maintain right. quality for you without risking death loss, et cetera. So again, it comes back to that, what we talked about earlier. Every situation, you have to really evaluate that and hopefully you can find somebody because you always hate to get rid of your animals because it isn't. It was not easy to get them back. Right. I understand. Yeah. And, and that's going to lead right into my next question, because I'm thinking to that producer that has now sold off their, their breeding stock. Uh, there's been some rain, pastures have regrown, and, and now they're ready to re build back up. But rebuilding the flock uh, in years following drought can be expensive. I spent, particularly if you've sold uh, the vast majority of your animals off and you want to get back to a, a fairly sizable number. Now, do you have recommend, recommendations for producers uh, who are taking advantage of that deferral that you mentioned just a second ago, but instead to elect to repurchase their animals? Um, and, you know, how is the impact of, well, how should they approach that, I guess I should say? Well, one, well, the provision that allows us to repurchase, but one of the things that's built into that kind of helps reduce the pain of buying back 
high, high priced animals, which will occur because everybody's in demand for those when the drought starts to end. So instead of having to buy back the same number of animals that you sold, all you have to do is invest the same dollar amount hmm. when you buy them back to avoid having to recapture that income or uh, the amend the return. So right. all you have to do is buy back the same number. Another thing that's kind of uh, that helps is the fact that we can typically spread those purchases over a two-year period. You have two years to buy them back. So you buy back a few one year and buy back a few the following year. And if the drought's severe enough, that period can even be extended to four years. So by doing so, by working with it, you can kind of spread out that uh, high, the hit of the buying back over a period of time. And hopefully, hopefully, prices will, of those breeding animals will kind of uh, level off or smooth, smooth out a little bit over that period of time so that you're not spending a, a fortune on all of them all the way through. But you're, you're correct. There's, there's no way of, uh, it's not a perfect storm. It's not a perfect okay. situation. What about those producers that would prefer to uh, select their own replacements from their own stock as opposed to just buying everything back? How does that change? That, that changes how you're going to report it on the tax return. You're going to make the election that you're going to report that excess sale the following year, pay the tax okay. on it. And then as you start building them back into the herd, uh, then you just essentially um, keep those numbers back. Now, one right. thing that's interesting that, that I failed to mention here. So you're selling off raised animals. Mm -hmm. And raised animals get a special treatment from the standpoint of breeding stock. Instead of bad or income being ordinary income like you would have if you purchased them, let's, let's lay out both to the two scenarios. I buy a ewe, I put her in my breeding herd, I depreciate that ewe over her life. When I later sell her due to the drought, I have to recapture the depreciation taken as ordinary income. If I sell her for more than that, that excess is treated as capital gain income. So part of it's ordinary income, hopefully part of it's capital gain. If it's a purchased animal, the neat part is all the cost of raising it, you or uh, the lamb till the time she's bred, are deducted as ordinary expenses. And when we sell her due to the drought, it's all capital gain income. So it's going to get that 15% maximum tax bite. And in some scenarios, it could be even zero. So there's where the, the pieces come into that. So to get further into the question, if that's what they decide to do, it's really not that detrimental from a financial point of view. It's just uh -huh. a decision that you make on the tax return. Well, I'm going to go ahead and bite the bullet, pay the tax, and then over time I'm going to rebuild my herd from the animals that I have. Um, it may take me a little bit to recoup that income, but at least I didn't – uh, hurt my genetics standing exactly the yeah exactly the block yeah yeah exactly okay now to this point in our, our podcast here we've mostly discussed with how to deal with weather related or weather necessitated selling of livestock uh, from a risk management perspective how can we be as robust as possible uh, to the next inevitable drought that may come along in the future it's kind of hard to predict when droughts are going to occur, and you know that very well. I've been doing some looking, and there's some things that we can utilize from the uh, 
USDA, the Farm Service Agency, to help with some of this problem with droughts. But, but for the most part, trying to be prepared is uh, ideal, but it's very hard to do because what we're trying to accomplish with our business is we want to maximize profitability. We want to have the opportunity to grow it. So where do we put our money? We put it back into the business, which is a very prudent idea. We want to grow it. We want to expand it. Uh, we want to improve it. By doing so, when the drought hits, we typically don't have a whole lot of extra cash in the bank. We don't have a whole lot of extra resources available. Yeah. But on the other side of that coin, um, by having growth, we may have a little extra borrowing capacity. What we The issue really boils down to, in the farm business, we're gambling some, we know that, but we want to play to win. Right. Not to uh, play, not to lose. If we're playing to win, we're going to be on the forefront. We're trying to increase, increase profitability to our best of our ability, utilizing our management skills to their utmost, instead of trying to play a little close to the vest and not have a disaster. Right. But in, but in good years, should we be saving a, a certain percentage uh, for you know potential drought preparation? I would agree with that comment. Yes, you should be. In the, it's, it's a little bit like if you look at the uh, profitability of a farm, we always have those years of just exceptional income. Right. That's the year you put a little extra away for uh, that yeah. rainy day. Yeah. Ideally, that happens. Does it always? Not necessarily. Right. That, that would be the ideal scenario. That would be the great greatest way to avoid some of these problems. Um, but yeah, those are the best laid plans. Yeah. But to your point about playing not to lose, is there such a thing as being overprepared for a disaster? I mean, is there a point where we aren't taking advantage of opportunities in good years because we're trying to play it too safe? I would say that would be a correct scenario. I, I don't see that happening in the real world when I've worked with producers on an individual basis. But I, I see your point, and I say that that, that could very well happen because uh, yeah, I don't want this to happen to me again. Then we uh, start making decisions or we do things that may not be to that optimum level. Right. Understandable. Now, I've got a more of a philosophical question for you here. How has rancher preparedness for drought changed? Uh, how has their mindset changed over the last century or so? Uh, and as you know, experience or has it been some research findings with maybe new crops, you know, how, how have we better, how are we better prepared now than we were a hundred years ago? If you look at some of the things that have, have occurred, we have better knowledge of drought tolerant plants. Mm -hmm. We have a better idea of uh, forage management, which has a great, is a great player in this thing. Right. And we've learned a lot in terms of what we can do to, improve water sources, um, feed storage. That was one of the things I remember we, when growing up in the livestock, uh, beef cattle industry. The minute we had the ability to keep the mice out of the uh, feed sacks, we in, ended up being able to buy feed and put it in storage at a much cheaper price and we were buying it a little bit at a time. Right. So when you're looking at over time, yes, we've had some various great improvements, vast improvements. And we've learned a lot, like I said, forage management, feed, four feed storage, things like this. But the problem is we just haven't figured out how to make it rain. <laughs> there you go. 
That's one we're still working on. Now, as we wind our discussion down here, uh, what is the main point you would like our listeners to take away uh, from our recording today? What What is a take-home message that they can really hold on to? Biggest thing when it comes to experiencing a drought or other problem, the advice of others, professionals in the field, and that's all fields, production, finance, tax, legal, etc. That's a great place to start. Find out, learn. Uh, those resources are there. Utilize them. Mm-hmm. And then once you've utilized them, it's often wise again to sit down and evaluate all the options uh, when you look at the outcomes throw out anything that may have some less than desirable overall impacts keep those that are, are good but seek out the resources and utilize them they're there don't pass them up yeah and i would argue that this recording today is going to be a great resource for a lot of people uh, I, I imagine several are going to have to listen to it a couple times to pick up everything. Uh, to that point, where can our listeners or our producers go to learn more about the information that you've shared with us today and, and talked about? One great source of information is uh, it's called RuleTax.org. If you Google that, there's information on tax rules, tax laws, fact sheets, et cetera, written by people like myself across the nation, talking everything. And one of the articles is on this, uh, on the weather-related sales. It's there. We've also got some information on hobby losses, information on basic tax return information, uh, depreciation rules, et cetera. So RuleTax.org is a great source of tax information. Also, the IRS has a, the Farmer's Tax Guide. Okay. Yeah, you're looking at it and said, well, that's an IRS publication. <laughs> Believe it or not, it was written in the 1940s by a bunch of ag economists. Oh, good. Extension folks, yeah. et cetera, that the IRS said, we want this publication. So they took it under them. And the rule or the extension tax committee made up of state extension specialists meets with IRS annually to go over that. So that information is out there. And then, then other goods to, to uh, kind of give you an idea of what's going on nationwide, go back to the drought monitor, the FSA website, and look at what the drought conditions are. The And, and as they start moving your direction, kind of give you an idea of, well, maybe I should be becoming more prepared, or this is what it looks like is coming at me. Right. Absolutely. All right. That, that, we're kind of winding down on time, and, and I really want to thank you again, JC. Uh, a tremendous amount of very practical advice in an area that can be pretty tricky for some of us to comprehend. Uh, so thank you very much for joining us. Well, again, thank you for letting me join you. This has been been wonderful. Great. And I want to thank you listeners as well for tuning in for another episode of ASI's Research Update. Our, our hearts definitely go out to all of you who are experiencing the worst of this dry spell. And hopefully we've provided a, a tiny little sliver of help today. Be sure and catch us next month right here on your favorite podcast platform. But until then, eat lamb, wear wool, and maybe try leaving your hay out in the field or your pickup windows down just a little bit longer. It can't hurt. Have a nice day.